I'm trusting that you do have a Bible open to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. We're going to launch immediately into today's passage. If you've glanced over the sermon outline, you have probably noticed by now that there are no fewer than seven points to this sermon, and that means we've got to get cracking if we're going to get out before this evening. So here's the big idea. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission... Our church's vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. And just a parenthetical note here, now that we've mentioned leaders, let's define that. Leaders in this fellowship are inclusive of, but perhaps not limited to, pastors, elders, deacons, I'm going to run out of fingers here, husbands, Parents, those who mentor others in a personal discipling relationship, those who lead a community group or a study of some kind. You getting the idea here? That's a lot of us this morning in this room today. That is most of us probably in this room today. Those of you who are in a position of of influence in such a way that there are others who look to you for leadership or you've taken responsibility for some people or maybe even one person in order to lead them somewhere. Well, how do you listen to this sermon if you're not a leader? What's in it for you? That's a good question. Here's my answer. Though you may not be a leader at this present moment, in a church our size, it is probably the case that you're awfully close to one. They may be married to you, They may be parenting you right now. They may shepherd you. They may lead your ministry team or your community group. They may be mentoring you. In other words, this sermon matters to you too. It deeply impacts everyone in this sanctuary. At the very least, those who look to leaders that you would be praying for leaders during this sermon and be aware that one day you are going to become a leader sooner than you might imagine. So Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against, number one, hypocrisy. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against hypocrisy. In some ways, this first point sets the stage for not only the rest of these points, but also next week's sermon as well. Uh, You may notice that in this morning's passage, it doesn't use the word hypocrisy. It is undoubtedly what Jesus is referring to in the entire passage, but specifically verses 37 to 41. Next week in chapter 12, verse 1, we're going to see Jesus use the H word um, clearly. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, who he's just been talking about, which is hypocrisy. This week we don't have the word, but we have the, the imagery. We want to be on our guard against hypocrisy, and if we want to do that, we will be wise to just begin to get a sense around, wrap our minds around what this, what this is. What is hypocrisy? We'll do a deeper dive into the word that Jesus uses in chapter 12, verse 1 next week, um, but at least at this point, we need to be aware of the fact of how this word was used in the ancient world. In the Roman Empire, a hypocrisis was a name for a play actor on a stage. 
it was used to describe an individual who took on an alternate identity as an act. A person who was putting on a public performance. And in this passage, Jesus is about to interact with a man who could be nominated for best actor in a nighttime drama. Okay? We begin to get a sense of why hypocrisy is so fitting as we look at verses 37 to 41. So we read in chapter 11, 37 to 41, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the inside make the outside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Okay, so let's set the scene. In verse 37, Jesus is still preaching to the crowd, that, that, that obtuse crowd listening to him from the last two weeks, those who are unbelievers at best, uh, suspicious of the, the motives in the ministry of Jesus. He's speaking to that same crowd the one that we began learning about in chapter 11, verse 29. And here within the crowd, we learn there there is some Jewish leadership present taking in the teaching of our Lord. Somehow in the midst of it all, an invitation to dinner was issued and Jesus accepted. And we've said this before, but let's remember that meals were a big deal in the first century. This was not a foregone conclusion that Jesus would have gone to this meal. Jesus had a lot on the line in deciding whether or not he would do it. To share a meal in the first century was to share a life. As the context unfolds, what we learn too is that as we picture this meal, it's not just Jesus and his host. It's Jesus and a host of others. It's a public meal. Finally, verse 37 says that Jesus went in and reclined at table. The table is rather low to the ground and you would have leaned with your elbow toward the table and your feet kind of jetting out behind you. So that's the scene here. Jesus went in and he reclined at table. Now it's not what Jesus does here, but what he doesn't do that sets his host on edge. True enough? Verse 38, Luke writes, The Pharisee was astonished that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now for the kids among us, don't Don't use this text as a reason tonight to disobey mom or dad when they say wash before supper. It's not the kind of washing that is going on here. Pharisee's not concerned that Jesus' hands might be dirty. Everyone's hands were dirty in the first century. What the Pharisee is thinking about here is ceremonial washing, religious washing, very, very common in the ancient Near East of this day. And what's fascinating here is what Jesus declines to do is a cultural, not a biblical expectation. That's very, very important to distinguish. One contemporary author put it this way, such washing, though described in the Old Testament, was not prescribed in the Old Testament. Not this kind of washing. An important distinction to be sure. So in the eyes of Jesus' dinner host, our our Lord has just committed a serious social faux pas, if not a major ethical blunder, because the text says he was astonished that Jesus didn't, didn't wash. You may notice that the text doesn't have the Pharisee actually saying anything here. The implication is that Jesus is reading his mind. He doesn't have to say anything. 
And he replies, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. In the interest of time, I'll just limit myself to one further observation, and we'll, we'll kind of launch into the points proper here. Um, and that observation is this. The reason why hypocrisy, like in the classical sense, um, is here is because from Jesus' perspective, this man is play-acting. He's putting on a public performance. You can imagine Jesus pointing to the tableware in front of him, can't you? That's the illustration he had right in front of him in verse 39. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. The Pharisee is astonished that the spotless Son of God doesn't wash. We would be astonished if the spotless Son of God did wash. He didn't need to wash. And yet the one who's making the observation, don't miss it, is absolutely filthy. And if you'd like to learn a bit about what hypocrisy looks like in the lives of religious leaders, let's just follow our Lord as he launches into this evaluation. We've got six woes before us in what lie ahead. In each case, we want to be asking ourselves, do I have a problem with hypocrisy? And my sense is that the stronger you say the answer is no, the more likely is the case that you do. There's a lot on the line here. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders in its multiplicity of levels in this sanctuary, leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against hypocrisy. So the first manifestation of hypocrisy is is in point two, and it's this, deformed theology. Deformed theology. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. The leaders of Mount Free Church be on your guard against deformed theology. Now, before we get the wrong idea, I want to make sure that everybody heard me correctly. That's why I wrote the word in your outline so we wouldn't miss it. I said deformed theology, not reformed theology. There's a big difference. In my estimation, reformed theology is what the Bible teaches. Deformed theology is what we get when we distort what the Bible teaches. Look with me at the words of our Lord in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The word picture is a memorable one, right? The image is of a leader of God's people willing to make an end run around the majors in order to make a very big deal about the minors. In context, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament practice of tithing. Tithing, as many of you know, is is the idea of setting aside one-tenth of one's income to bring to the storehouse, to bring to the public place of worship. It was clearly commanded in the law of Moses and in the, Levo- law of Levi- in the book of Leviticus especially. And these guys were so serious about tithing, they went all the way into their kitchen cupboards just to make sure they were getting the job done accurately. These guys are literally tithing out of their spice rack. Okay? 
what's the implication from their perspective? The implication is that if they're tithing down to mint and rue and every herb, they must be serious about loving God and about justice for others. But that's where they're wrong. Were they wrong to tithe? No, they weren't wrong to tithe. Clearly, they weren't wrong to tithe. Well, where they were wrong was in neglecting the majors in order to focus on the minors. That would be justice and the love of God. Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you know what this is? This is deformed theology, distorted doctrine. Do we do this? Are church leaders ever guilty of this brand of hypocrisy? Happens more than you might imagine. I was at a, a pastor's gathering just this past week out in the, the broader West Metro, table full of like-minded, uh, conservative, evangelical guys, and uh, we were talking all about sort of how our churches approach the matter of community-wide initiatives in our various towns. How do we mix it up with the broader community when it comes to service? And one of the pastors who spoke up, who I, th I think a lot of actually, was lamenting about how many different ways their broader community expects them to be involved in compassion and mercy ministry initiatives. You know, things like feeding people and clothing people and housing people. As I was talking, I was just inching over on the table just to make sure lightning was going to strike. I wanted to be over here when it happened. I think that leaders do do this. What is Jesus looking for? Well, let's start with Micah 6.8. What does God want of his people, particularly of his leaders? Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I think that Jesus mentions justice and the love of God here to these spice rack tithers because these are aspects of ministry where we should just be killing it. <laughs> Compassion and mercy ministry is a ball that the local church ought to knock out of the park every single time. This is just a no-brainer. Feeding people, clothing people, housing people, that's Christian ministry 101. Even people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ know that's the case. Our communication of the gospel must be accompanied by a demonstration of the gospel. Anything short of that is hypocrisy. Now, is this the only way our priorities get out of whack here? No, I, I don't think it is, but this is the one that Jesus mentions. Can you think of others? Other ways that we major on the major or major on the minors in the Christian life? I'll let you dwell on that as we move to point three. So Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against deformed theology. Third feature of hypocrisy in leadership, vanity. Vanity. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against, against vanity. Verse 43 Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. All right, here in verse 43, Jesus is referring to a, a universal temptation. This does not take a lot of interpretation. There's an immediate application here. A universal temptation, and it is especially strong in the lives of leaders. And that would be the temptation to be inflated with pride in oneself. 
excessive interest in, excessive promotion of oneself. What Jesus is describing here is conceit. Folks who love attention, either by hook or by crook, just to get people to notice them. You know what I mean? Jesus references the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces. I've been thinking this past week about what the modern equivalent in the 21st century of these might look like. Um, Maybe it's living for likes or shares on Facebook. Am I the only one who's done this before? I mean, you, you, you put together, you post something you think is worthy of an Oscar that morning, right? And you launch it out there into the social media world, and then you just check in like 19 times throughout the day to see who's in your corner, who's given you that, that like, that thumbs up. It's vanity. Now, the ultimate expression of vanity in the digital world is the selfie, okay? It couldn't be more obvious. It's more obvious than other online behaviors, but I'll tell you this. A Christian leader whose social media outlets are filled with pictures of themselves taken by themselves. That's vanity. Now, I know not all of us are in the Facebook family here, so for you, vanity might look like something else. It could be the way that you rattle off your resume when you have the opportunity with somebody. Um, It might be that you're a name dropper, you know, just happy to let people know who you know and how you know them. Perhaps it's the way you dress or the way that you sort of slyly fish for compliments in the context of a conversation. Maybe it's your victim mentality or the way you tend to complain. There are lots of ways to do this. But I'll tell you what, from Jesus' point of view, it's vanity. It is conduct unbecoming a Christian and a Christian leader especially. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against vanity. Next point, and it's an important one, impurity. Impurity. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against impurity. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now let's not forget, Jesus is still reclining at table, okay? It's interesting, some commentators actually don't like the idea that he could have lit up the Pharisees like this in the context of a meal. Um, They say that this kind of reaction would have been um, socially awkward uh, for a meal of the first century. (laughs) Really, since when did Jesus care about making things socially awkward, right? He cared way too much about people's souls to get in a twist over something like this. They are still at supper. He's at somebody else's house. And the point here is impurity. Okay? Why impurity? Why do I say impurity? Because what Jesus is describing here, in the words of New Testament scholar Daryl Bach, is a death trap. A death trap. Listen to this. Daryl Bach says, these are death traps. They convey impurity. The picture is of an unmarked grave that might cause someone to come unknowingly into contact with a body, a dead body. Such conduct would make a Jew unclean and was to be avoided. Now, the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 19, verse 16, confirms this beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
So the image isn't just one of death. It's for sure one of death. These guys are spiritually dead. But it's more than that. It's a sort of death that contaminates others. The point is impurity. What Jesus is telling these leaders is that their lives are polluted. They are tainted. They are soiled. And their impurity isn't a victimless crime. He says, you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. Translation, you are so impure that when people come into contact with you, you defile them. Now, is this a relevant warning for church leaders in our day? What could be more relevant? Impurity, particularly sexual impurity, is the carbon monoxide of the church today, the spiritual carbon monoxide, a colorless, odorless, tasteless, poisonous toxin. And you ask, well, how serious is sexual purity for a Christian leader? How big a deal is it really? Well, let Jesus answer that question. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, he teaches, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. He didn't mean it shouldn't be confessed. His point is, it shouldn't be happening. Of course it should be confessed. It must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's Paul. Finally, Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the best part. Such were some of you and me. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's the bottom line, friends. If you are a Christ follower in this church, especially a person who is seeking to lead others in this church, you need to do business with what Jesus says in verse 44 about impurity. You you have to regard it as a big deal. Impurity, especially sexual impurity, is a big deal. You can't play with fire like this and not expect to be burned. If you need help, please come and talk to me. Talk to someone in your circle of relationships that you can begin to get accountability with. Reach out to this church. We have resources for you. And just a newsflash, if you plan to go to heaven, you cannot take this with you. Today is the day. Today is the day to lay it down. So Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of his leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against impurity. Next, Severity, S-E-V-E-R-I-T-Y, severity. Leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against severity. Now, this is an interesting moment in the text. 
Jesus has just unloaded three devastating woes back to back to back to the Jewish leaders and to the Pharisees in particular. And you remember that we said at the beginning here, this is not a private meal. We know that because of what goes down in verse 45. In verse 45, a lawyer speaks up. And we need to get clear here what a lawyer was in this culture. Don't picture a guy in a pinstripe suit driving a Jaguar to the IDS tower. That's not a lawyer in this case. A lawyer in this context is an expert in the law, the law of Moses, a teacher of the law, a Bible teacher. And along with the Pharisees, these guys formed the highest level of religious leadership in the nation. Jesus is aiming at the top line, top tier of leadership. And so you can see why he feels compelled to speak up. It's a memorable exchange. We read it in verses 45 and 46 that one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Don't you almost feel for this guy? Like, dude, (laughs) you just kept your yap shut, right? You would have saved three woes from everybody here. We could have gone home early. What we see here is that this, with the single question, the lawyer effectively unleashes another three woes upon the religious establishment of which he was a vital part. He wished he hadn't said anything, no doubt, but now that he has, he's going to hear it. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches, especially with leaders. He never pulled punches. It was the late R.C. Sproul who once said, when he deals with leaders who are in positions of power, Jesus asks no quarter and gives none. You say, where's the relief? There is no relief, not for leaders. So what does he say to them? In verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load the people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. See what he's saying here? What he's driving at, you could argue, is just the essence of hypocrisy. This is a perfect example of hypocrisy. This is do as I say, not as I do. That's exactly what this is. And to make matters worse, these leaders of God's people aren't even pointing them to God's word. They can't be. You know how we know? Because Jesus says in Matthew 11, 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This yoke in verse 46 is anything but easy. This yoke in verse 46 is anything but light. You load people with burdens hard to bear. That would be man-made burdens, not Bible burdens. And you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Do as I say, not as I do. And the question before the leaders in this room today is, are we like this with our leadership? Here's a self-diagnostic question for everyone who's involved in mentoring in our fellowship in, in one way or another whether parenting or pastoring or shepherding or discipling or community group leading, here's the question. Do I create unbiblical standards for others to follow that I myself have no intention of abiding by? Do I create unbiblical standards for others to follow that I myself have no intention of abiding by? There was an an individual who, this is not in the manuscript, uh, there was an individual in the broader community 
who was a pack, two-pack-a-day smoker for 40 years, and I began to counsel them about two years ago, just about two years ago to the day. And I was urging them, they profess faith in Jesus, I was urging them to put down the cigarettes with everything in me as a non-smoker, right? Easy enough for me, urging them to put down the cigarettes. And what was interesting was in the context of the counseling, we'd have uh, first session, second session, third session, I would see them once in a while at Super America. And it was just a little bit embarrassing, you know, that's why we all get our gas and so on. And I, I um, was at SA and this person's buying their cigs at the, at the counter. And I'm not there to make life hard on them, but I'm there to get my coffee. I mean, it's 3, 3 p.m. and I get a 24-ounce coffee, right? That's what you do at 3 in the afternoon, right? And the Lord began to just twist this into my soul that there really wasn't a comparative difference, not in terms of addiction and not in terms of enslavement, from nicotine to caffeine. And for a number of other providential reasons, the Lord began to lay this really heavy on my heart to the point where I thought, I can't ask this person to put down the cigarettes until I put down the coffee. And by God's mercy, that happened about two years ago. Uh, This is painful. I was creating an unbiblical standard for someone to follow that I myself had no intention of abiding by, or at least a biblical standard that I had no intention of abiding by. So this is you, this is me. And let's be clear, Jesus hates it. He hates it because his burden is so much different. It's a burden, yes, but it's life-giving. It's hope-producing. It's God-glorifying. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against severity. Second to last point today, almost done. Be on your guard against repeating the errors of history. Be on your guard against repeating the errors of history. Verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. By the way, that's the first martyr of the Old Testament and the last martyr of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying there. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, the blood will be required of this generation. So what is this about? Because it sounds like a noble thing on the face of it. They are building the tombs of those who perished. It almost sounds like a noble thing, a thing of honor in verse 47, but Jesus sees it differently. Daryl Bach does a great job of explaining this. I'll just read what he says. He says, Jesus is charging them with collusion in the murder of God's prophets. The point is that the same spirit that caused their ancestors to slay the prophets still lives in them as their rejection of Jesus shows. Jesus is essentially saying that the current generation is finishing the job that the previous ones started. You say you honor the prophets, yet you reject those who inherited their message. The only prophet you honor is a dead prophet. Your ancestors killed the prophets and you make sure they stay dead. End quote. That's what's going on here. In other words, those who don't learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. In my view, this is a call for Christian leaders not only to learn their biblical history, but their church history. And not only their church history, but their local church 
history. Hebrews 13.7 is a clarion call to study the lives of the saints who have gone before. Hebrews 13.7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. And in the days ahead, you're going to start to see an increasing number of Christian biographies appear on our shelves downstairs in our library. Please read them. We've purchased them for you. Read about Ryle and McShane and Lewis and Whitfield and Mueller and Judson and Wilberforce and Newton and Bunyan and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon and Owen and Machen and Cooper and Brainerd and Simeon and Edwards and on. Read about them. Learn from their triumphs. Take heed of their failures. And be encouraged that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways to turn the world upside down for Jesus. That's what Christian biography ultimately allows you to see. So I urge you, head down there, check out the resources that are there for you into the days ahead. We've got a whole stack that are scheduled to get processed to add to the collection. Lastly, on this matter of history, just a word on our local church history. All I mean is this. Our church is turning 74 years old this spring. If you are relatively new to our midst and you have a vested interest in the future of this fellowship, I want to invite you to learn its history. A number of people in this room and that are still a part of this church know the story of this family. And I want to encourage you to learn its history not for purposes of satisfying mere curiosity, not for purposes of trivia, but rather to learn the path that's taken to bring us to where we are today. There is a lot of collective wisdom in this local church. Lay hold of it. At the same time, we are a church that has matured by making a lot of mistakes. We have a messy history. Learn from it. Interview the folks who've been around here a while. They'll be of value to you. They will serve you as you seek to walk with our church into the days ahead. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders, so be on your guard against repeating the errors of history. Now, I know we're probably out of breath, and we're almost out of time, but give me one final point. You're not going to want to miss this. Leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against failing to embrace sin's only remedy. Be on your guard against failing to embrace sin's only remedy. Let's finish reading our text and make one all-important application. Luke eleven fifty-two to 54. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. By the way, that's a verb that's typically used of, of, of animals that are on the hunt in the Old Testament, lying in wait to catch him in something that he might say. Hmm. The greatest tragedy of this entire encounter is the ultimate response of the religious leaders to the words of Jesus, and that would be they don't repent. They don't grieve their sin. They don't turn from their sin. They don't ask for forgiveness. You get the sense that as you read this, they probably couldn't repent. That they had traveled so far down the road of disobedience, hypocritical disobedience, disobedience when no one is looking disobedience, that they couldn't turn back. Don't let that happen to you. If you're a Christian in this place, particularly a Christian leader in this place, don't let the words of Christ 
keep you from applying to the work of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross. His blood shed for your sins and mine. Every one of these ugly sins in Numbers 1 through 6. The Savior died for the church. He didn't die for a faceless, nameless rabble of souls. The atonement of Christ's cross is extremely personal. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember, the gospel is for believers as much as for more than it is for unbelievers. On your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you are never beyond your need for God's grace. I learned that from Jerry Bridges. Romans 1.15, Paul says, To the church, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. The gospel is for believers. If you're a believer today, if you're a leader in this church today, lay hold of the gospel. If this sermon has exposed your need for Christ, then run to him. Grieve your sin, yes, and then throw yourself on his mercy. We all stand in need of mid-course corrections, so turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus afresh today, and get going. Well, let's review. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. Our church's mission and vision will only rise to the level of its leaders. So leaders of Mount Free Church, be on your guard against hypocrisy, deformed theology, vanity, impurity, severity, repeating the errors of history, failing to embrace sin's only remedy. It's an intense message, isn't it? Don't just breathe right now, right? It's an intense passage. Jesus' words are cutting, but they're cutting in the way that a scalpel is cutting. It's restorative. It's ameliorative. It's healing to excise the cancer of our souls. And you know why? Because as I was reminded this weekend, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. You know, in the wake of Billy Graham's death, uh, my thoughts, as I'm sure yours, have been with him and his family and thinking over his 99 years of life over this past week. I have been led to consider afresh the titanic contribution of this man's life to the cause of the gospel. Billy Graham didn't walk on water, but he knew the one who did. And he was a powerful force for the kingdom in this nation and around the world. There was a book a number of years ago published by Zondervan entitled The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. If you look that up online, you can get it for free. 300 pages. Amazing. The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. A number of the chapters take on the usual suspects, uh, birthing a vision, forming a team, dealing with temptation, empowering other leaders, usual fare. But there's one chapter in my mind that stands out. It's chapter five, and it's called Loving Harsh Critics. Isn't that a great chapter for a book on leadership? Loving Harsh Critics. And toward the end of the chapter, they survey how Billy sought to do this over and over and over again. He had critics on his right. He had critics on his left. He had unbelieving critics. He had believing critics everywhere. Here's what they conclude. The authors conclude this. Turn your critics into your coaches. If you've never heard that phrase before, write that down. (laughs) Turn your critics into your coaches. 
They say, all of us need the insights that we can get about ourselves and our challenges. And if we look at our critics as a source of insight, we can leverage even painful critiques. Critics can sharpen the mind, clarify parameters. They can force us to evaluate what we really believe about ourselves and our mission. How we respond to critics reveals a lot about our sense of calling and our composure. And I would add, it reveals a lot about our character. If we're hungry to be corrected. So turn your critics into coaches. This is good advice anyway. But it's infinitely more so when your critic and your coach died to justify you and rose to sanctify you. So next week, as we discussed earlier, we'll take on the same topic of hypocrisy, but we'll do it from a different angle. This time, the Savior broadens his warning to to all of us, not just to leaders. In particular, one week from today, we'll have the opportunity to study, to my mind, a, a verse, a single verse that is quickly becoming the most motivating verse in the New Testament for me with regard to sanctification, and it's this one, Luke 12, 2, where Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's next week. All right, now let's pray.